0: Welcome to the Reimagined Medicine podcast. As always, we look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will focus on emotional wellness. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz.
1: I'm Dr. Katie Bright.
0: We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us.
1: For many people, the holidays are associated with time spent with family and friends, creating memories, writing narratives of our lives. In this episode, titled Not So Happy Holidays, we're going to focus on the other side. Holidays can also bring stress, people are grieving, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and many other emotional health challenges. We are so glad you're with us.
2: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care.
0: Our guests today are Lizzie Windsor and Dr. Kristen Ray. Ms. Windsor is a clinical simulation nurse in the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix's simulation center. Lizzie has 26 years experience working as a nurse in clinical settings. She has a master's in nursing education and recently started her doctorate of nursing practice program in mental health. She's also an active reservist in the US Air Force Reserve. Dr. Kristen Ray is a licensed professional counselor and doctor of behavioral health. She serves as the vice president of behavioral health at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Dr. Ray has extensive expertise in integrated healthcare delivery, individual family therapy, crisis intervention, program development, and evaluation.
1: Thank you both so much for coming. I have a question for you, Lizzie. During the holidays, people tend to focus on making things perfect, trying running around, doing everything for their loved ones the old adage, fake it till you make it. Um, So much that they might ignore signs that they are struggling. As a nurse who has cared for a number of patients, what are some of the common symptoms that you've noticed? Maybe some warning signs, behavioral cues or red flags that people should, should look for that they might be dismissing?
3: So often uh, there are classic symptoms of depression like prolonged sadness, lack of hope, or loss of interest in previously enjoyed activities. But sometimes there are also subtle symptoms, and a common misconception in people is that they need to be weepy or sad to be diagnosed with depression. But however, sometimes these changes can come in as uh, changes in sleep pattern, some eating habits that change, and feeling fatigued. Uh, In my practice, I've also seen patients experiencing irritability, hostility, anger, and being sensitive to rejection. Uh, some of the subtle signs of depression uh, patients have said is that they've, had, they've experienced slowing of thinking, forgetfulness, or difficulty making decisions. Uh, sometimes they overthink the situations and events, and uh, they get caught in that loop of negative thinking. Um, so those are s- typically some of the symptoms that you see in patients. Right.
0: Lizzie, those symptoms uh, uniquely define us as being human almost. My concern is that a physician or any other healthcare provider sees a patient for such a short period of time and many of the symptoms that you're describing are expressed over longer periods of time. What advice do you have to clinicians or future clinicians about how to either draw out those symptoms or gain confidence in the uh, patients in terms of describing those symptoms that might be identified as depression or other types of behavioral health uh, conditions?
3: Yeah, the symptoms that I mentioned is as you correctly said is uh you know like it's not like a day or two that they can just snap out of it uh it kind of lasts for uh weeks on end. and usually we say that uh patients uh we typically teach the families to identify those and uh usually we teach the patients to identify those symptoms in themselves and uh normally we tell the kind of you know like we educate the clinicians to um be able to be looking out for those symptoms and ask and probe the patients when when they see them or interview them.
1: That's great. Just to follow up a little bit, I wanted to talk a little bit about triggers for depression. I think there's sort of a Um, possibly a misconception that there has to be a specific trigger for depression and sometimes there might be but can you talk a little bit more about that specifically we know that there's a neurochemical imbalance in the brain with depression that patients really don't have control over I was hoping you could just expand upon that a little bit for our listeners
3: yeah uh, typically depression doesn't always need a trigger sadness can come uh, without any kind of unpleasant event or warning But oftentimes, it can be preceded by some triggers, and some of them are major life changes, such as a move or a graduation or a new job. Uh, Oftentimes, patients say that they're going through financial troubles, uh, including bankruptcy or debt. There are often relationship issues, such as tension in the family. Uh, There may be a breakup or a divorce of their own or of their loved ones. Uh, Oftentimes, depression can be followed with death of a loved one um, or even uh, women talk about uh, having depression called postpartum depression after giving birth to a child. So even though it's a joyful event, women do go through that. Um, oftentimes, uh, patients and families move away, and they feel loneliness, and you know, like that can be a trigger for the for the depression and. Uh, of course, we all have stress, and sometimes it depends upon our coping me- mechanism and how we deal with it. And sometimes uh, that, you know, excessive stress can lead to triggers in depression.
0: Without question, and learning that so many different people in different walks of life are susceptible, if not even in expressing symptoms and signs of depression. I'm assuming this is a self-evident question. In terms, are there enough providers to uh, deal with the number of people who have depression?
3: We noticed that uh, they didn't—they did not have enough providers to, you know, like get help from, and so that was always a concern because we hear of. Uh, successful suicides being attempted in the troops Um, the 22 per day campaign came from that and uh, so all that instigated me to go back and get education so that uh, I can be one of those providers uh, to fill some of that shortage
1: Thank you. So you've given some examples of when maybe a life stressor or a situation could be triggering depression. For some people, they don't have a trigger. They might just be depressed because we know it's a neurochemical imbalance. Either way, what advice would you encourage those who might be feeling depression and symptoms of depression um, to, to take the first step towards getting help?
3: I would suggest that uh, they um, talk to their family and friends and uh, also to just learn about depression and learn those signs and symptoms and be able to recognize them in themselves and in close family members or friends.
0: Thank you so much. That helps to highlight the scope of the problem with depression. Dr. Ray, this is where you work. This is at the intersection of primary care as well as the social structure that we all uh, live in. Do you have any suggestions on how to identify or uh, these symptoms or even build trust with others, Um, especially in a way where timing is a critical element?
4: I think building trust quickly and at the right time with our patients is imperative to good care and can really impact our patients' health. About 80% of people with a behavioral health disorder will visit a primary care provider at least once a year, and so we are seeing these patients in primary care clinics. I think that there are definitely some skills that work better than others at building trust. As we know, changing health behaviors and change in general is very complicated and can take a long time. So, one of the skills that I think I would choose as one of the most important is that providers are able to have empathy and remain non judgmental while working with patients, especially patients who may have difficulty adhering to treatment or uh, their treatment plan or to their medication regimen. Um, and so, I think that goes a long way in building trust. In addition, communication is often really important in building trust. I think that communicating often, um, and even over communicating in healthcare, I don't think is uh, is real thing. I think you can communicate um, a lot of things for um, over and over again, and it sounds like we're repeating ourselves to our patients. But I think um, repeating important steps that people can take in their healthcare is really necessary to build that trust because patients will take away different messages at different times.
1: Excellent. Thank you. So, so Dr. A, as you know, as a primary care provider, I know that I'm often first contact for patients who are having behavioral health challenges. Can you tell me what your advice would be for practicing clinicians to be sensitive to these signs, remember to screen, um, include that as part of their practice so that they're comfortable detecting depression and anxiety so we can, can capture people early?
4: Absolutely. I think uh, many providers have some anxiety around screening because they don't know what to do with a positive screen. And I think that, um, especially with a depression screening, if uh, patients report feeling suicidal or uh, are unable to contract for safety before leaving the clinic, a lot of providers don't know what to do in that situation. And so I think having a plan in place um, for what to do in that situation can go a long way to helping providers feel more comfortable. I think there's also a myth with um, being really direct and asking patients questions about whether or not they feel suicidal will uh, contribute to their decompensation or increase their likelihood of committing suicide. And so I think understanding that being direct with patients actually builds trust and um, can go a long way into finding the right treatment modality for that patient um, can really help providers feel more comfortable as well.
0: Dr. Ray, before we get into uh, the way in which Bayless Integrated Healthcare puts together their healthcare system, can you share with us a knowledge nugget, basically a couple key phrases that you might use to start one of these conversations that our listeners can take back with them?
4: Sure. One of the phrases that I like to use uh, very frequently, and it's uh, we're able to use this in a variety of health situations or health problems uh, would be something like this the last couple of times i've seen you it seems like there has been a lot of stress affecting you or your family and i'm really worried about you i have a colleague who specializes in just this situation or helping others who are experiencing similar stress would you be open to talking with this person
0: that definitely gets to the idea of having listened and then repeating back to the, to the patient.
4: Mm-hmm. It also normalizes that there are other people feeling that. And I think oftentimes, sure. especially with depression and anxiety, people feel so alone in those, in those disorders. And so really validating normalizing that it's an experience that other people feel can
1: really go a long way as well. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of what we do is trying to... Um, Destigmatize depression. It's so common and so prevalent, and I think it is so important in healthcare for everyone to understand that it's so prevalent um, so that people don't feel alone. Could you expand a little bit on the topic that Lizzie brought up about how clinical depression is more about feeling sad? It can be in the absence of reason rather than being able to pinpoint a specific situation or a specific emotion?
4: Absolutely. I think
1: it's very common for
4: people to have a lot of guilt around feeling depressed or sad, especially if there isn't a situation that initiates those feelings. Uh, And a lot of people often compare themselves to other people in their lives that may have what they deem as more unfortunate circumstances, uh, and so they don't feel justified in having those feelings. I think it's interesting that when, as professionals, we diagnose depression, that the situation isn't part of the actual diagnosing. So we diagnose depression based on the symptoms that the person experiences and that those symptoms last and are unrelenting for two weeks or more. And so I think that when you combine those things that there really doesn't need to be a triggering event that leads to people feeling that way.
1: Great. So so many clinics and hospitals are starting to kind of become integrated and incorporate the physical and the mental health care together. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit since Bayless Integrated Healthcare is ahead of the curve on this. And I know As a primary care provider, I'm fortunate to be in this setting where I have colleagues like you at my fingertips, but for our listeners, could you explain what this integrated model looks like and also why you think it's impacted your ability to care or how it's impacted your ability to care for patients? Sure, so I'd love to expand on that by using a story
4: about a patient because I think it really drives home the impact in a very personal way. One of my favorite patients to talk about is a teenager that I worked with several years ago, and she was uh, going to see her pediatrician for her annual visit, the pediatrician, did the annual screening for depression, uh, and it was a positive screen. And so he did a warm handoff and introduced me to the patient. When I delved in and asked further follow-up questions about the depression, it turned out that she was feeling suicidal that day um, and, had, and met criteria for a major depression episode. So we began her treatment, um, and I saw her weekly, and we were able to do some therapy around the depressive symptoms. One of the interesting things about working with her is that she originally had come into the pediatrician because she uh, met criteria for, for obesity, asthma, and was pre-diabetic, and so she had some pretty substantial physical ailments as a teenager. After we were able to work on her depression, uh, what we really noticed was that she was exercising more. She was hanging out with her friends more. She was in, more in contact with her uh, with her mom and her other relatives. Um, and so she began to take her medication as prescribed. Her asthma symptoms went down. Uh, she started to lose weight, um, and she no longer met criteria for pre-diabetic, pre-diabetes. Yeah
0: done an excellent job of stealing my next question, which was about (laughs) describing a success story about how integrated healthcare was able to achieve a success and and describe very cleanly how it's not just the patient, it's the patient's extended support network and the healthcare provider team around them.
1: So switching gears here, uh, because we just have a few few more seconds with you. Uh, I recently read your article that you had published in the Foothills um, News on seasonal affective disorder. In your opinion, do you think that the holiday blues could be significant enough for patients to actually not be motivated or avoid seeking help with a health professional? Absolutely. Seasonal depression, which is also known as uh,
4: seasonal affective disorder or SAD, um, it affects about 3 million people per year. And a lot of people uh, don't seek treatment because they believe it will pass, um, which is in some ways true because if it's seasonal, it comes and goes. Uh, but I think what a lot of patients miss is that it reoccurs. So the next season, they'll tend to feel the same way again. And so I think as providers, if we continue to screen, even though we may also believe that it'll pass because it's a seasonal disorder um, and offer help and offer for connection uh, that people will be able to connect with care as needed
0: that's an excellent point the thought that just occurred to me is that despite uh, the fact that holiday times add additional stresses and additional duties to our normal daily life uh, the, one of the last things we should do is avoid actively avoid seeking help at this time of year I just want to say thank you to both of you for sharing your insights on recognizing and beginning to intervene regarding mental health. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Wish we could go on, but we have to take a break. After the break, we're going to continue with our next guest.
4: Thank you for having us.
2: Dr. Johnny Lifschitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the curriculum committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare.
1: Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine Podcast. Dr. Touch is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Family, Community, and Preventive Medicine here at the U of A College of Medicine, Phoenix. She also serves as the director of the Behavioral and Social Sciences Health theme, which is spread across the four-year MD curriculum to help students learn to understand and heal the whole person as early as year one.
0: Welcome Dr. Touch, we're happy to have you and extend the conversation that we have on emotional health uh, for this particular podcast. As Katie said, you are directing the behavioral and social sciences theme for our medical students in order to make them the best medical students that they can Um, The idea behind this is to help those students understand and address barriers to healthy living and medical adherence so that they can broaden their thinking about how social, family, and psychological factors might impact health and disease, not only for patients but for themselves. So the question I have is, how does this shape the care that our students and alumni are able to provide to patients? Understanding this theme, how does it help them to recognize issues in their patients and uh, provide the appropriate...
5: Well, thanks again for including me in this so early in the Reimagine Medicine podcast. um, I believe that being able to focus on behavioral health will really take the Hippocratic Oath from a pledge to living in action. So we are teaching skills to the medical students as well as knowledge base about the psychological factors that impact health and healthy living and those barriers to being healthier. I think we teach skills that have to do with how well they can um, motivate clients and patients. Because I think we do some patient education, but that doesn't always translate into action or behavior change. So we're teaching skills as well as attitudes and knowledge that will, I hope, uh, launch our students well into the next, you know, 20 years in their practice. Wonderful. So here at the college, we are we are
1: often reiterating to our students that in order to take care of others, you need to take care of yourself. Yeah. And this is true not just for physicians, but for teachers and parents and really anyone, especially in the business of taking care of others. Right. I think sometimes they let their own health go by the wayside. So how, how would you recommend overcoming the stigma surrounding behavioral health to encourage people to recognize when they themselves might be neglecting right. their behavioral health? and I'm um, struggling to To recognize it and seek care. How would you How would you recommend doing
5: that? Well, I think people, especially here at the medical school, do really well with the kinds of care, self care, like exercise and eating healthily. And I think when it comes to emotions, we kind of learn to kind of manage or even suppress and distract ourselves from the emotions that we tend to think are negative. But I do think that they accumulate. And um, of course, people know about anxiety related to exams. They may... They may be able to sense in their fellow students, in their friends, that something is wrong and that they kind of in a in a patterned way keep pushing off their emotions or putting them down. And I think friends can probably help each other if they're willing to kind of take that courageous leap and ask if someone is doing really doing okay or if they need some help and support. So I do think that friends have a big part to play in that Um, I do think that we have a culture of normalizing uh, how we can cope with stress in some maybe not great ways like maybe drinking or um, again avoiding and denying and I think when people reach out with other alternatives anything from kind of being out in nature being together and socializing in a way that actually gets to the heart of what's going on in people's lives I think that's helpful.
0: I really like that idea of encouraging our students to get together outside of official duties, so to speak, get out and um, either volunteer in the community or pursue a passion, like-minded students with that being said, I would like to pick your brain for a knowledge nugget. A knowledge nugget is a phrase or a starter conversation. Do you have a skill that you try to present or, or share with the medical students to help start these conversations that we can share with our listeners?
5: Well, I do think that... Um people being honest about their own kind of struggles is a good way to start, because it sort of opens an intimate conversation that we don't often have. So if people have had personal challenges, um, obviously they may not want to reveal everything about that, but they might say what they tried. Um, I think the other thing is noticing some behaviors that people might try to deny or minimize. So, with a very non-judgmental, caring kind of perspective to say, you know, I know that you haven't been able to get up very easily in the morning, or you have been kind of skipping study groups. So, noticing patterned behavior, within a, and then kind of following that with, is there anything that I can do for you? Is there anything that, you know someone else who maybe knows about how to help with sleep problems or, you know, kind of identify some symptoms like we would do with patients with other illnesses um, and just, you know, kind of put it out there as an invitation. Yeah,
0: it really gets back to that idea of an honest conversation between individuals.
1: Right, right. And I wanted to just spin off that a little bit as a, you know, as a former med student and now a primary care physician, I know <laughs> that when I was in med school, but this is mm-hmm. true, I felt the first six weeks, I'm just never going to make it.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: But no one, you know, everyone else was doing just fine. Right. Come to find out n- not everyone was doing fine. Right. We just were all doing the fake it till we make it thing right? and trying to figure out how to, to do that. So I, I'm so glad that it's pretty evident to the students that if they do need help, I think talking with the students they know where to go Uh, but can you expand upon that a little bit if
5: students do decide that hey this is a little much Well, there's a lot of invitations from student affairs, Mm -hmm. and we have two psychologists as well as the ASU counseling center downtown. So, students actually have accessibility to psychologists and licensed professionals really um, that they can talk with on a brief or a longer term basis. I think um, some people do have insurance and they may be able to uh, use that for other, you know, counseling or even support group kinds of things. And I know time is really challenging, so that's one of the barriers. But um, there are also things like telemedicine and telemental health. So people could use some of those resources kind of any 24 hours a day. They may be able to find uh, someone who's licensed and credentialed and willing to help.
0: Well, I know know that for myself as not a medical student, but as a graduate student and a a male, I'm not supposed to seek help. Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to share my emotions and that I may not have sought help for emotional issues if... I had to come out of a specific room that someone might see me coming out of right. and that's part of the stigma. Right. Do you have any suggestions or ideas about how an institution might help like the mm-hmm. College of Medicine might help to destigmatize uh, emotional health?
5: Well, one thing I think is that we tend to relate our private self to other people's public self. Mm. And so we think, like kind of you were talking about, Dr. Bright. when you see other people seeming to do so well, they are not doing as well because privately they're a different person. So I do think that sometimes asking a friend to go with a person to a counselor, um, kind of systematically having hours that are available, like earlier mornings or evening or weekends, those kind of can be more private and confidential. I know sometimes there are different entrances or exits in counseling centers, and now they're co um, co coexisting in Mm -hmm. medical practices. So I think that takes away the stigmatism as well. So for my next question,
1: it's going to kind of blend a couple different thoughts, but I'm always struck with how reluctant people from all walks of life are to talk about really Really, any healthcare issues, but particularly right. the, the behavioral health right. and the emotional challenges they're having. You know, and, and so trying to destigmatize, just to spin off what Johnny just said, and make people realize that hey, your emotional health is part of your health. It's a neurochemical imbalance. We have ways to help. Right. Uh, obviously, once a person has made the decision to seek help, that's great because they're in the you know in the system, and we can start kind of moving forward with a treatment plan that works for them. Right. What are some of the resources, though, maybe for some of our listeners who might be identifying with some of the symptoms of anxiety or stress or Mm -hmm. maybe depression,
5: to even where to start? Well, I think we have to kind of think about primary care and tertiary care. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times people come when they're in crisis. There is a text line, a crisis text line, and people can text seven four one. 741. They repeat that 741, 741. And a crisis counselor will have a text conversation. And that's a national hotline. And I think that that's a good kind of confidential way that people can use. But I do think that EAPs, employee assistance programs, if any of their parents or family members are employed and that's a benefit, they can use those. And typically there's no cost for that. So there are resources. The other thing is NAMI the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And those are places that, again, have local chapters, lots of support for patients and families. And I think that just kind of doing some web searching and looking for clinics near them or obviously word-of-mouth referrals would be excellent. But on campus, there's a lot that we do, for students especially, to try to really... um, promote wellness and mental health as a normal part of living.
0: It's so exciting to hear that there's so many different modalities that our uh, students as well as anybody in the general public can seek in order to help them. To those of you listening to this podcast, if you or anyone you know may be showing signs of anxiety, stress or depression, we're glad you tuned in. Please know that you're not alone. Your primary care provider is ready to help. If you don't even know where to start, please start with the resources provided on the website associated with this podcast.
1: It's been a pleasure having you join the conversation, Dr. Touch, and we appreciate you taking the time with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. So, so what an interesting discussion this has been. So many key takeaways.
0: Without a doubt, it's expanded my idea of what uh, depression, anxiety, stress, the whole concept of emotional wellness might be, where I came in thinking that depression might just be sadness or crying or being weepy.
1: Mm-hmm. Kind of the Hollywood definition of depression or what we see but really it was nice to see that our our guests expanded upon that I mean often there's no weeping or sadness it can be concentration it can be sleep it can be appetite things don't excite you like they used to anymore so it was really nice that um, they, they expanded upon that for our listeners
0: And these emotions are actually all part of life. They can be triggered by very specific events, um, and then the responses might be perfectly normal. A person may need help for that, Mm -hmm. but if uh, the response is beyond what is expected by the individual, then perhaps they need to seek help.
1: Absolutely, how we respond to life circumstances varies from one to the other, which again has to do with our neurochemical makeup. But the other thing that I like to just reiterate is that there's often no life trigger, and that's okay too. Uh, sometimes I think people are always searching for a reason and that's part of that guilty feeling of why do I feel sad? I have a good life. Like nothing's happening to me. I have no reason to be sad. So I love the fact that Dr. Ray and, and Lizzie and Dr. Touch kind of debunked that. I mean, you don't have to have a reason to be depressed.
0: Correct. And if there is a a depression that's surrounding your daily life, that there are people around you who want to help you. Uh, As a culture, though, we need to really get over the idea that um, there's a stigma to mental health. Absolutely. Uh, many people myself, were afraid to be judged. Why, uh, why do I want to be judged? Sometimes it's nice to hide in the corner or not to not be pointed out for something specific. And if it is something such as mental health, then uh, it can be even more challenging to have to accept and, and reach out and seek help.
1: And, and that stigma is there for a reason. I, I loved how Dr. Touch, mentioned that even as recent as a few years ago we had separate entrances and waiting rooms for people who were there for psychiatric reasons or behavioral health challenges i mean we were part of the stigma issue Uh, so it's nice that we're sort of moving in a good direction i hope to to sort of make people realize hey your emotional health is just part of your health emotional and physical health are intertwined and and so So it's important that we make sure you're well, both emotionally and physically. You can't separate the two.
0: Right, and knowing that there's not only the... uh Infrastructure, the entrances for these uh, type of conditions that's changing, the fact that the terminology is changing Absolutely. from mental illness to actually mental health and everyone's interested in improving their mental health. And then the fact that uh, Dr. Touch is running the theme for the medical school mm-hmm. that focuses on physician health because if I'm going in to seek help, I definitely want my physician to be in the best state possible to help me. And knowing that uh, these students are getting that type of engagement Mm engagement role playing as well as case studies early on is going to help them be better and help them help their patients as well
1: and we we really do need to practice as clinicians and physicians practice what we preach to our patients which is self-care and and, you know I I loved what Dr. Ray said and, and you said we've changed from mental you know to mental health from mental illness uh, but also, sometimes we just avoid that word altogether. So her nugget was really interesting. A lot of times when I'm speaking with a patient, and she alluded to this, we just say things like, "Oh my gosh, I'm glad you brought that up because I happen to have a colleague who deals with exactly what you're going through," which could be insomnia, it could be with and avoiding jargon terms like mental or right. beha- even behavioral health. If we can keep that out of the conversation, because health is health, and however we can help our patient become healthier from a from an emotional standpoint is the goal.
0: And just connecting on a human level, starting that conversation and starting that conversation is very awkward. It's very easy for me to ask you, where do you work out? How often do you Mm -hmm. work out? How much do you bench press, Katie? That type of thing. Or are you, uh, what are your dietary habits? But if I have to ask, how are you feeling today? Or um, are you feeling satisfied in your job? These are more awkward, even deeper conversations. We got a lot of information about how, um, People are not alone in this situation. Mm-hmm. They're definitely not alone. Uh, there's a large portion of the population that has signs and symptoms that would be equivalent or, or assigned to emotional health conditions that we do have help for. Unfortunately, we also heard that many of these people don't have a primary care provider. Right. And so perhaps one of the first steps is to reach out to others in their support groups.
1: I think the more we can be open about it and share our experiences, the more we can kind of decrease that judgmental piece as a primary care doctor that part breaks my heart because I feel like it's such a privilege to take care of someone total whole person health including their emotional health I always say why would I not take care of a patient from the neck up it's an important <laughs> part of their health um, and I and I feel like it's a privilege when someone does trust trust in me enough to to discuss that because that's often a, a way to begin the process to help people find what's their best um, path for getting better emotionally as well.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, uh, starting that conversation with a healthcare provider Mm -hmm. is a great way to start, but there's also the opportunity to start that with a trusted colleague, a friend. Yes, Um, support
1: networks. Mm -hmm. I
0: I really like the idea of um, going out and building your emotional health through perhaps a hike with somebody where exhaustion might allow you to drop some of those barriers and bring out some of those emotional conversations. But not only that, if you're going to go on a hike together, we heard advice of going to see seek help together. Mm-hmm. That if uh, a workplace or a school provides help, that create your own small group Therapy where you feel more comfortable sharing, or at least that you're not sharing in front of a stranger first, that you're sharing with a friend. Um, and then that just reiterates the fact that many of us. Uh, are going to be comparing our private selves to everybody else's public life, mm-hmm. and uh, we can all put on a show. Uh, but inside, there's a lot of emotional turmoil that can use a variety of coping mechanisms and coping strategies. And
1: we all have those separate private lives. It's the fake it till we make it um, facade. So that's great. If it's a place to start. And I think that's the the bottom line. A hike and you know group support might help some people. Some people might need to seek more in-depth help as far as you know maybe therapy some people might need medication everybody's different so I think the main thing is just finding out what each individual needs and um, hopefully getting them motivated to to take that first step
0: motivation to take that first step that's probably the summary of this particular podcast we just need individuals to get started whether it's with their friends or their coworkers.
1: And I'm really excited and I wanted to thank Lizzie for joining the ranks because we have a shortage of providers in general, but especially in the behavioral health realm. So we're super excited that she's chosen that path.
0: Uh, As well as many of our students may have also chosen a similar path. We hope so. In the next episode of Reimagine Medicine, we'll be talking with the founders of the CyberMed Summit, Dr. Jeff Tully and Dr. Christian Demeff. The summit titled Fighting Hackers, Healthcare's Newest Threat. We're going to be talking about how malicious attacks can actually uh, undermine medical care, and we're going to look for... Uh, ways in which we can develop solutions against that in addition Dr. Suzanne Schwartz will join the conversation from the FDA and you won't want to miss that I went to the summit last year and it blew my mind
1: well I feel like our discussion today Johnny could go on and on clearly behavioral health is something that we are both passionate about but unfortunately our time is up for today bright out like a good night's sleep
0: lift shits out like a well-functioning
2: GI system the Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifschitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine, the song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BY-SA 4.0 license.